In Toronto, 1 in 7 people are food insecure. This translated to 1 million visits to food banks in the past year. The majority of these visits include children, black people, and marginalized communities. What causes these alarming numbers in one of the richest countries in the world? Is it stagnant wages, higher costs of living, or the lack of local food sources? Today's episode looks at answering some of these questions with the Executive Director of Foodshare Toronto, Paul Taylor. Paul is the Executive Director of Foodshare Toronto and a lifelong anti-poverty activist. Growing up materially poor in Toronto, Paul has used his experience to fuel a career focused not just on helping others, but dismantling the beliefs and systems that lead to poverty and food insecurity, including colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchal structures. Each year, Foodshare provides a quarter million people with fresh produce and fights for their right to have access to good food on their own terms, rather than charity on someone else's. We are so excited to have you on the podcast, Paul. Ah, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Hikmet. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I guess I'll just start off at the top. You know, I'll just we'll just jump right into it. Um, so today's episode is on uh, food insecurity. So maybe you can help us define what is food, food insecurity first and foremost. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it's something that's not always completely understood. You know, we think about lack of food and kind of that's where our, our thinking ends. But really, food insecurity is about the inadequate uh, access, inadequate or insecure access to food due to financial constraints. So really simply put, it's about when people or households don't have enough money to purchase the food that they need. And the key piece, uh, you'll uh, probably talk about this a little bit later, but a key piece of the definition is it's about money more so than it is really food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, and I mean, uh, there wouldn't be like a one straight answer to the question of why does food insecurity even, you know, occur? Why do, why do we get uh, food, food insecurity in cities? Uh, but, you know, in Toronto, there are uh, maybe not to the extent of some American cities, the concept of food deserts, uh, you know, not having access to grocery stores. But it does exist in Toronto to some extent as well, if you just Google it, um, you know, even looking at grocery store locations. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, what are some of the causes that go behind uh, leading to, you know, entire communities being food insecure, not having access to, um, like you mentioned, uh, healthy and affordable food? Well, it's all about income. So it's um, largely is that our governments haven't taken the issue of food insecurity seriously. You know, what we've done is we've constructed in this country, the way that we respond to issues of food insecurity is through charity, food banks, that sort of thing. That is not an effective solution because actually during the time that food banks have existed in this country since 1981, we've actually seen the number of food insecure people increase. Uh, And then in fact, the most recent numbers peg 5.5 million people um, uh, as food insecure in this country. So largely it's because the government is not introducing appropriate and adequate income-based measures to support people to access food. So, and when I talk about income-based measures, I'm talking about things like minimum wage. It's being set has been set too low. These are not livable wages. Um, we're talking about things like uh, social assistance and in, any income assistance programs that are, are woefully too low. Um, so those are some of the things that are at the disposal of the government that if they really took these issues seriously, that they would be uh, reaching for those levers uh, to um, uh, tackle food insecurity and, and things like poverty. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm glad you mentioned uh, minimum wage in particular, just having, you know, uh, good employment. Uh, because part of the, one of the things I've, you know, in my research as well, I've kind of seen is, you know, people will look at the presence of grocery stores alone. You know, if there's a store there, that community is quote unquote served. I mean, you're right. That's not really an income based approach, right? Because if you can't afford the food, um, it doesn't really matter if you have the access to the store right next door. Um, and part of it also, I think, uh, so there was a study recently with, uh, from the University of Toronto with uh, looking at, um, you know, the type of employment people have. So if you're working long hours and long shifts, partly because, well, not partly, but entirely because of the minimum wage being so low um, and, you know, you needing to work, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours in a day, right? Uh, by the time you get off work, most stores are closed, right? So you have access to uh, fast food and you have access to um, unhealthier food. You have access, you don't really get access to the, uh, the rest of the, because most stores, you know, do close at, you know, 9, 8 p.m., whatever it is. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned employment. Um, and you've, you also mentioned the work that, you know, non-state actors are doing. So, you know, uh, whether it's food banks, uh, you know, communal kitchens, stuff like that. Uh, so from a historically, from a policy perspective, has it just been kind of uh, turn away and ignore the problem from, you know, from the government? No, I would say, you know, actually, prior to the 1980s, um, in Canada, we really looked at those income-based interventions to tackle poverty and food insecurity. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things we've realized is that's the way, you know, much of Europe had really responded to these issues. So and actually, as we look at the situation now, where we're starting to see growth of food banks in some European nations, a lot of, a lot of us in, in Canada and some in the U.S. are saying, whoa, 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 this is not the road to go down. We've been there before. Um, so in, in Canada, in the early 1980s, everything changed, I think. And it's partly due to the, the circumstances of there being, you know, Thatcher in power in the UK, Reagan in power in the US, and Mulroney in Canada. They went to war on the welfare state, um, you know, launched a privatization agenda, all kind of pillars of the neoliberal agenda. So what we saw is we went in this country from income-based interventions to food-based interventions where, you know, we were trying to convince people, and I often caution people around the reframing of poverty as hunger. It seems subtle, but it's really important um, because when we do that, it allows people to think, oh, the response, the solution is our leftover cranberry sauce and this sort of thing, which is not a solution. So, you know, and all of this happened, this transition in this country without any political debate in parliament, without any vote, um, you know, and we saw Canada's first food bank, like I said, open in 1981. Since then, they've grown significantly and they've absolutely become part of the, uh, the landscape in this country around food access. So I think where I draw a little bit of hope from is, is the opportunity to debunk this, this myth that the solution is corporate waste or household leftovers. Uh, where I draw some inspiration is actually around the pandemic, you know, um, where the government has actually recognized that the solution is not to send everyone a bag of bread, some apples. The solution is to make sure that people have the money that they need to weather uh, an income shock and, 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 and protect against food insecurity. So that is the kind of intervention that we need to be championing and advocating for, I think, um, uh, and I'm just going to add one more thing that is, is really important to these conversations about food insecurity, uh, especially when we look at the context of the 1980s. It was actually uh, four years before that, 1976, 
when Canada ratified the right to food. So our federal government signed on to this international covenant that said that Canadians now have a right to food, which meant the government is responsible for the, creating the conditions to allow people to access food. Um, so we're not talking about a right to corporate waste or a right to other people's leftovers. We're talking about a right to eat in dignity um, and, and for folks to be able to feed themselves in their communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, you know, again, like that's something that just shocked me because you're right, food banks have become so ingrained in the landscape. Um, you know, uh, most mm-hmm. communities have a couple of food banks. Um, so even like, uh, like I just graduated high school two, three years ago, most of the volunteer hours you need, the 40 hours, most people do them in food banks. Like that's just because it's easy, the, the easiest way to find, you know, uh, a cause nearby where you can get those hours and you can contribute. And it just, you know, it just, you know, that, that shocked me. 1981, the first food bank in Canada, that's, that's an, a lot, you know, that's, um, I don't think that statistic most people actually realize or know. Um, I certainly did not at all. Agreed. Um, and you're right, it's definitely a national problem, right? So, you know, per the hunger count every year uh, from Statistics, Statistics Canada, uh, you know, the numbers are going up. You know, more and more people are going and going to food banks every single year nationally. Um, so while it is widespread in Canada, uh, in terms of policy response, where do you think it falls? Is it a federal, uh, federal, provincial, municipal? Because it seems to me that nowadays you're getting a lot of, you know, local responses in the sense, you know, kind of bandage solutions from the city, um, whether it's, you know, you pop up... Uh, a food kitchen here or you know you support organizations here and there um, which you know it might mitigate the problem but you're right in terms of the income and in terms of looking at some of the root causes of you know people just not having money to buy food um, would just definitely fall uh, federally um, and I guess that's I want also want to you know ask you in terms of food share to because you work with food share um, what what is some of the work all um, you know all of you do in addressing food insecurity Okay, the, the, what I'm going to do is respond to the first part of your question around kind of jurisdictional responsibility. Um, I think it's nonsense, actually, uh, what our politicians do when they try and say, you know, this is not our responsibility and this passing the buck and passing the buck and passing the buck. Well, passing the buck hasn't made anyone less hungry in this country. So I, I, I push back around the kind of jurisdictional garbage that politicians try and force down our throats. It's about every single level of government has a role to play to advance human rights, and every single government needs to be doing uh, their job to do that, including advancing the right to food and the right to housing and the rights of indigenous peoples. And and if every single government was aligned and looking for all of the levers available to them to advance uh, human rights, well, then we would have no one in this country that's food insecure. So I certainly think there are things that can be done at the federal level. There are things that can be done at the provincial level and certainly things that can be done at the municipal level. It really just takes political leadership and a willingness to combat these issues. And I think food share shows up in a really interesting and unique space. you know, when we think about, you know, largely in response to government inaction around issues of food insecurity and poverty, we work in alongside communities and community leaders to develop community-led and community-run food infrastructure. So we're talking about things like urban farms, community produce markets, you know, school meal programs and community gardens, you know, all examples of food infrastructure that isn't, you know, based on the for-profit model. It's community-driven based on the needs of the community, the desires of the community. So, you know, and we do this work, we recognize that while we do have a right to food in this country, food has also been made a commodity uh, that people can only access if they can afford to access it. So if you don't have adequate income, you can't access uh, uh, as much food as those that uh, have more income. So 
we, we work on building these models while also advocating for public policy responses to address food insecurity. That's a huge part of our work because we acknowledge that, uh, you know, as I've, as I've highlighted, governments have, uh, have the, you know, the capacity and the uh, responsibility to be moving the lever on these issues. But we also work, we recognize that part of what causes food insecurity are really the existence and the proliferation of oppressive systems that affect who has food and who doesn't. So we're talking about things like white supremacy, anti-black racism, anti-indigeneity, anti colonialism, all of those things and the way that they're so insidiously uh, reflected in our institutions affect who has food and who doesn't. So that's kind of the work of food share. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of public education, public policy advocacy, and then working alongside community to respond to this crisis. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, the different factors at play as well. You mentioned racism, um, homophobia, and you know white supremacy. Um, and there's definitely a racial aspect to food insecurity. Like the statistics don't lie in that regard at all. Um, you know, on Food Share's mm -hmm. website, I was looking through it. There's a fact sheet, and it states that. I mean, I would recommend everyone to check out this fact sheet because there's some things that will, um, I think they'll surprise you because um, it mentions that black households are 3.56 times more likely to be food insecure than white households, right? So can you help me unpack the statistic a little bit? What does that mean? For sure. Um, it means that um, anti-black racism in this country is real and alive. You know, when we have a group of people in this country that have been racialized as black and only for that reason, is, or, or not so much that folks have been racialized as black, but it's really the prevalence of anti-black racism in conjunction to folks being racialized as black. But only for those for those reasons are they more food insecure than white folks. I think that's that's problematic, you know. And it starts with children. You know, we see that 12% of white children live in food insecure households versus 36% of black children. And those these sorts of numbers, while they're horrifying, they're not in, they're not terribly surprising. Especially when you consider, you know, of all of the children in the care of the Children's Aid Society, for example, 42% are black. When you think about um, schools, you know, black kids make up 20% of the Toronto schools population. Well, when you look at the rate of who's expelled the most, 48% of those expelled from school are black. Anti-black racism is built into our institutions. And I think the research that we did really uh, reinforced that. So for example, household composition. When we talk about food insecurity in this country before this research, we and we looked at it quite aggregately, we recognized that if somebody lived in a single parent household, they're more likely to be food insecure because there's less, there's less like, there's an um, uh, increased likelihood of less income. When it comes to black Canadians, that is not true. It doesn't matter whether or not uh, someone who's black lives in a single parent household or a dual parent household, the prevalence remains high. Same thing about immigration status. We've seen in aggregate data that if someone is uh, newer to the country, they're more likely to be food insecure. Well, when it comes to black Canadians, it doesn't matter if you were born here, born abroad, doesn't matter how long you've been in the country, risk remains high. We also saw something around home ownership and renters because usually again you know one of those markers is that if someone owns a home understandably they're less likely to be food insecure mm -hmm. again what we found was really interesting when you look at the percentage of black homeowners that are food insecure it's about 14 percent 
which is just about equal to the number of white renters that are food insecure, about 14% of white renters. So it's really um, illuminating when you start to see those sorts of trends. And I'm going to share a couple others with you that, that we found really illuminating. Yeah. One was around uh, seniors and then another around social assistance in this country. For seniors, another part of the conversation around food insecurity prior to this research was that you know, we've got to be pushing for a basic income because as soon as someone hits 65, in essence, they and, and they can collect their retirement income. In essence, they have a basic income through things like the guaranteed income supplement, old age security. Um, but when you look specifically at black seniors, that isn't the case. It doesn't. Um, the risk remains high for black seniors. When we looked at, you know, where people who are food insecure derive their income, we saw something that was quite puzzling when we looked at social assistance we saw that white folks in this country receive more money, more income from social assistance than black folks did. And we couldn't understand why. And then as we tease this out a little bit further, we recognize that it's because uh, disability income supports are included in that, which suggests that white people in Canada are more likely to be approved for disability, which means they'll receive more money. And when they are approved for disability, they're more likely to be approved for more money than black folks. So again, what this research highlighted for us is that one of the most important causes for, for food insecurity related to black folks is in fact anti-black racism. So the solution, you know, we're not tackling anti-black racism by lining up at a food bank or donating to a food, sorry, by donating to a food bank. Uh, we really need political leadership around political, yeah, political leadership around tackling issues of anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you mentioned that because um, like even recently, uh, I think a month ago, there was the whole debate in uh, in city council um, on reducing funding to you know the Toronto Police, which um, eats up a chunk, like a major chunk of the budget of the city of Toronto mm-hmm. every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, it just I guess it just shows, like you said, you know where the priorities lie politically, where the uh, you know where where does the funding go? Because um, while a municipal government does have you know a certain, to a certain extent a limited budget. All right, um, where you allocate that budget definitely reflects the priority. So if we're putting it towards policing, uh, again, primarily uh, black and racialized neighborhoods, um, instead of addressing other problems, um, problems of food insecurity and housing and, you know, affordable housing, um, is definitely, I think, it just shows where, like you said, the shift in the 1980s of the neoliberal shift, I think, to some extent. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And in that sense, too, you also mentioned earlier the commodification of food, where food becomes, you know, something you buy and something you own. Um, rather than a basic human right. Um, and the same thing has happened with housing, right? So since the 1980s, mm-hmm. um, housing has become something people speculate on. You know, you buy how people buy houses for an investment opportunity, primarily. Um, so I guess in, in that sense, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, when, when food, you know, part of it, do you think um, in that 1980s shift, you know, the neoliberal shift of, you know, housing and food becoming a commodity, is it also linked to housing to an extent? Because, you know, I would imagine if, um, a large chunk of your income is going towards rent because you can do the calculation on the Toronto City website as well. You know, for a certain age, you know, male or female, how much would food cost you for a month, right? And if you do that for a family, a typical family of three, um, you know, uh, three kids, uh, two parents, um, you know, just I just plugged in some random numbers, you know, just some things that, you know, uh, 30 to 50 for the parents and whatnot. Uh, the cost I got for a month for food was almost $1,000, right? And I'm imagining this in the context of Toronto. So if you're paying $1,000 a month for food, um, and then you're paying way more than that for rent, right? Um, 
like the what you get left and that's not again not including all the other expenses you have because the food basket doesn't include um, sanitation products and you know household items and things like that it just seems to me that you know all of it is linked because you mentioned because i think part of the thing i'm getting is that food insecurity doesn't exist in a bubble uh, you're tying it to all these other mitigating issues of income and poverty and housing um, which often is lost on us you know we go towards the solutions of food banks and you know kind of address and it sounds so cliche right so the whole thing about you know f- teaching a man how to fish and giving him the fish right um, you're gonna you can keep giving uh, we can you know provide communities with food uh, for a long time but unless we kind of look at the core issues of why access to food isn't there um, I think we're kind of missing the mark and um, you know and I'm really glad you mentioned that um, and I guess you you also mentioned uh, you also mentioned near the end the idea of seniors once they you know hit the age of I guess you know retirement uh, you get kind of this thing of guaranteed income. Um, so what are your thoughts on something like a guaranteed livable income? Uh, because it has been popping up recently um, as a good way to address, you know, poverty, food insecurity, housing, and other things, other problems that uh, the city of Toronto does deal with. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, I think it's uh, an interesting proposal with some potential, but I'm actually, I, I think I prefer to take a couple steps back because I tend not to be the type of person to just focus in on a policy in a vacuum. Uh, and I think that can be problematic um, because we have to have a conversation around that policy. It needs to be anchored in a context. So going back to what I said earlier, you know, I think that governments need to be prioritizing human rights. And that needs to be the frame. And I think in one of the richest countries in the world, surely we can expect a decent quality of life for all of the inhabitants on this land. So I think if we're looking at advancing a decent quality of life, and that's what we're working towards, we need to look at all of the tools available to every level of government. So yes, basic income is is largely, or having an income floor is a, is a significant part of that um, that kind of uh, toolbox of, uh, of uh, interventions. But it can't happen in isolation, you know, building on your point around housing. It was actually in the mid 90s, early 90s, 93, I think it was when uh, another liberal government actually stopped building affordable housing in this country. We used to actually build more co-ops, affordable rental and social housing. And as part of a deficit. My sincere apologies. At this point, Paul's answer cut off due to a recording mishap on my end. He continued to expand on his answer. Uh, particularly explaining how the uh, liberal governments of the late 80s, 90s, for example, uh, in order to address the deficit, clawed back a lot of the support systems such as affordable housing um, and other measures that were addressing poverty and uh, income inequality in this country. So you did mention anti-black racism as one of the things. And even if we look at it something, uh, you know, even just because you want to take a holistic approach to food insecurity, not just looking at, you know, grocery stores, supermarkets. Uh, but even if we look at something as basic mm-hmm. as that, looking where the stores are mm-hmm. concentrated, um, and you mentioned, you know, historically, this not even historically, even ongoing, I guess, uh, the systemic, you know, barriers to whether it's getting approved for disability, um, you mentioned whether it's um, housing, mortgages, things like that. Um, and even in the sense of food, where the stores are located is very lopsided. So I wanted to ask you, uh, historically and ongoing, is there an incentive or something pushing away uh, affordable food, um, supermarkets, you know, with healthy food um, in lower income areas? Um, you know, is it just, um, is that also a policy failure um, where we don't have access to food? Instead, you get convenience stores, for example, with, you know, highly priced, you know, fresh uh, vegetables and fruits. Uh, is that also something that comes from, you know, historical lack of addressing where where we put grocery stores? 
Good question. So I guess the first thing I'm going to push back on, because I think what you're alluding to is the notion of food deserts. And I think um, it's it's a problematic framing food deserts because it's another tool that allows people to think that the response is food. Because actually there's, there's little, I've never come across research around um, the existence of there are correlation between food deserts and food insecurity. And I think largely that's because, you know, I grew up as a low income kid and I know that folks who are low income will are accustomed to traveling far distances to access food. Um, we know that we have to get one item here because it's on sale here. And then we've got to walk, uh, several kilometers to get to some. Uh, I think, and sometimes the existence of a uh, grocery store um, more so reflects a food morale, food basics. There's uh, uh, whatever it is, is here that's a little bit you know, cheaper than some of the other places, but I still can't afford it because the price of food is going up and my income isn't. Uh, so I, I think it's more akin to a food mirage uh, more often than not. And then in terms of the conversation, one more thing I'll add to the conversation about food deserts. I really like what my friend uh, Karen Washington in uh, the Bronx, New York, says about it. She says it's food apartheid. You know, when we say desert, it almost sounds like it's a naturally occurring thing. But this is chronic and continued underinvestment in low-income, often racialized communities that have led to sucky services in communities that are largely racialized. I'm glad you kind of pushed back on the idea of, uh, of food deserts, uh, and you're and you're right. Just because uh, from this conversation, like just what I've learned personally, even is, uh, you know, food insecurity doesn't exist in a vacuum. It doesn't exist on its own. You know, something you know way up in the mountain, you can address that and fix everything. Um, it is connected, you know, to income and poverty, um, and everything else you mentioned. Um, and now I guess I'll go back to the earlier point on you know guaranteed um, a guaranteed livable income. And I'm so glad you mentioned, I guess, pushing back on this. Because often in the in the past you know past few weeks, what I've seen is um, a very neoliberal approach to guaranteed income, where it comes at the expense of all the other social security, all the other programs and government services, um, where this is kind of seen the one bullet, almost like a cheaper solution for the government, right? You just give people money, yeah. um, cut everything else. Um, and I guess I'm really I'm really glad you mentioned that, just because you know part of it is having access to services and then the income on top of that, right? Because if you don't have access to uh, transportation and housing and all the other things you know the government provides um, you're really just again you're going to actually probably hurt people more than you're going to help them um, so on the guaranteed livable income i guess um, you know maybe if we can clarify uh, you know just how you would how you see something like that panning out and how you know it would work um, because you know one of the things if the political will if, if it even exists you know because often the people that are kind of popping onto the guaranteed livable income are talking about cutting other services, um, which, you know, what the, the vibe I'm getting is that you think that's problematic. You need to slap those people's hands and say no cutting of other services. Um, I, I, I reject also this, um, you know, the politics of either or, you know, um, we, we have been convinced of such low expectations of our politicians that um, we, have, we, we feel that we have to pick between whether or not we will have services, public services, social services, and things like a basic income. 
Well, I think we need to be also talking about a wealth tax on some of the richest people in this country who are extracting incredible amounts of wealth from communities across the country. We need to be talking about cracking down on offshore tax havens. We need to be talking about why do we have 45 billionaires in this country? That is a significant policy failure that needs to be corrected. I think those are the sorts of things we need to also be talking about, um, less about cuts and more about how do we actually continue to equalize society through using the levers available to us. And certainly there are people that are not paying their fair share. So instead of kind of a, mm, which one of these progressive kind of things can we have, should we be begging for, let's say, let's stop begging and let's start making sure that our politicians are working actually for the public good and actually to advance human rights and not just corporate, corporate, uh, not just profit, <laughs> you know? So I think um, that's where I would begin with that because of course we can't have a basic income that means that we're not going to invest in housing. We can't have a basic income that means we're not going to invest in childcare. We need to be moving forward and I think the, the, certainly the devil will be in the details on what potentially a basic income might look like. But I'm also recognized that, you know, provincially there was a liberal government in Ontario that just mentioned basic income. And uh, many people actually thought that that government had introduced a basic income. Um, I had friends telling me that, oh, you know, if only Kathleen Wynne had won that election, there'd be basic income in Ontario. And actually what they just introduced was a pilot, a needless pilot, I would say, because we already have data that suggests that, you know, income affects levels of food insecurity, income affects poverty. We know what happens to seniors, uh, like I said, aggregately, we know what happens to seniors when they have access to basic income. So, uh, you know, we have to be really mindful of how kind of next steps uh, happen around these conversations around a basic income. And I don't think we should allow for any type of policy that also um, uh, is rooted in cuts to uh, valued social services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, on that point, even because like, one of the questions uh, people are always going on about is, you know, how are you going to pay for it, which oddly never shows up for certain things and is always there when it comes to uh, programs and, you know, uh, things like childcare and transportation. Uh, recently, I read, I read this really interesting book, uh, The Deficit Myth, looking at this issue of deficit, you know, how pretty much every government in the Western, you know, uh, you know, whether it's in Europe or North America, is always banging on about the deficit, right? And I think the pandemic, in a sense, uh, really showed us what governments can do and the power they do have, you know, if they really put their minds to it. Because, you know, we printed, uh, and I say printed, not I guess not literally, but, you know, the government uh, just, you know, made up billions of dollars, right, to help people in need, you know. And this isn't something that they couldn't have done before. They have the mandate to do this, uh, you know, whenever they're in power, uh, it doesn't have to be for only a pandemic because, you know, a pandemic is something, I guess, it took everyone by storm. And I understand the uh, supports, which, you know, while imperfect, you know, CERB wasn't perfectly implemented. Um, I'm I'm very confident. And, you know, speaking from personal experience, it did help people who are in a tough situation, right, uh, as a temporary solution at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems to me like the government power, the government, you know, uh, the, the the tools are all there. Right. And I'm so glad you mentioned that just because at the end of the day, I think it does come down to political will. Um, oh, yeah. The government showed us what they what is possible when they actually think something is a crisis or emergent or an emergency. 
you know, as opposed to, you know, what they did the last time when the government said, you know, climate change is we're in the middle of a climate emergency and then the next day bought a pipeline. So, you know, what I think happened in the case of the pandemic was the government actually demonstrated what it actually looks like to Canadians when uh, there's a crisis and what governments have at their disposal to respond to, to a crisis. So I think we need to keep our expectations high and we need to continue to um, position issues like food insecurity, poverty, alongside climate change as significant crises that we need to address and that we expect political leadership on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. it really comes down to what the government sees as an emergency uh, because it does come down to perspective. Like at one point during the uh, during the pandemic, I recall, you know, the daily deaths from opioid crisis in um, in Ontario actually went above uh, the deaths uh, for from COVID-19, which if you think about, you know, the, the, the different responses are, you know, uh, night and day. It's, you know, just something is perceived as an emergency uh, and something else isn't, whereas the consequences and the results actually arguably might be worse in another case, uh, which is, you know, persistent is almost seen as an inevitable thing about life you know you're going to have this crisis you know people are going to um you know we can't do anything about that uh, and i'm going to end off maybe on this note and give you i guess a chance to uh, maybe share you know some of the work you're doing if you want anyone to follow you or follow the work you do anywhere um anything you want to plug i guess at this point the floor is yours ah i just you know i work with an awesome team of people at food share toronto and we are doing the best we can to kind of uh, ring uh, alarm bells and we're trying to, you know, be self-critical as well and critical of our movement. And, you know, we're hosting a panel on September 23rd, actually, that looks at kind of fat phobia and fat shaming. Um, so really pushing important conversations that are connected to food. Um, so I really encourage people to consider supporting Food Share, whether it's signing up to be a monthly donor or if you live in the city of Toronto, you know, you can even order a box of produce um, from uh, goodfoodbox.foodshare.net um, called our Good Food Box. Um, beautiful fresh produce will be delivered to your home and every purchase supports the work of Food Share. So I think, you know, we're trying to we're trying to do we have pretty lofty goals and none of it would be possible without the support of uh, generous donors and kind volunteers. So we really appreciate any support that uh, anybody uh, decides to extend. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of today's episode. Uh, Paul has been a wonderful guest, and I encourage you all to go to foodshare.net to get involved, volunteer, donate, um, however you can support because they're doing amazing work. Be sure to check out the podcast on Twitter at uh, City and Crumpets for updates and the occasional tweet about the Raptors. Goodbye.